Hello and welcome to the Viasat Podcast. I'm Alex Mellon with Corporate Communications, and today we're talking with Ken Peterman, President of the Government Systems Division here at Viasat. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Ken. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, Alex, for having me. All right, Ken, you know, uh, for the first time since the U.S. Air Force was established as a separate branch of the U.S. military in 1947, there's a new service just created last year. So the U.S. Space Force is now its own branch of the military within the Air Force, and it's one that is of particular interest to Viasat as a satellite communications company. So so I want to ask you uh, first, like, you know, why, in your opinion, was the U.S. Space Force created uh, instead of just being part of the Air, Air Force as it was? Well, Alex, you know, I've been in this business a long time. I've been in communications, satellite communications, mobile networking, and cybersecurity since the beginning of my career uh, 40 years ago uh, when I graduated from school with an electrical engineering degree with a focus in communications. And, and, you know, for the first 20 years of my career in the in the uh, 80s and the 90s, uh, DOD, with the collaboration of a defense industrial base uh, of technology companies was inventing things that had never been done before. Uh, And we successfully, collectively, uh, invented uh, satellite communications, uh, global positioning systems so that uh, warfighters could navigate. Uh, We we invented uh, together mobile networking and cybersecurity and all these technologies today that have uh, crossed over into the private sector and, and become that kind of indigenous connectivity that we take for granted when we bring the power of the cloud into our life every day to order food from a restaurant or navigate uh, uh, in our car uh, or, uh, or do online banking or any number of things that we can do. Well, these technologies didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago, and they were invented primarily so that our, our men and women in uniform could execute their missions as safely and effectively as possible in the most difficult of circumstances. So uh, uh, if you think back of how how you would go about inventing something that had never been done before, uh, there's no single company that had the broad enough shoulders or the broad enough technology base to take on uh, this kind of thing by themselves, whether you're thinking of, and, and, and you know, a good example is when we put, put, uh, put a human being on the moon for the first time. NASA probably let... 10,000 contracts over a period of six or seven years to invent all the different pieces it took uh, to put a, put a passenger to the moon, land, and return safely. Okay. I mean, we invented everything from aluminum foil to rocket engines, space suits, oxygen tanks, uh, all those kinds of things had to be invented. So uh, to do that, they had to break the problem down into its many, many, many pieces and let hundreds or thousands of contracts. And then the Defense Department or the NASA would put it all back together. Uh, as a, as a as the final systems integrator, and uh, and bring the capability to to, uh, to to bear to bring to make it a reality. So, uh, satellite communications for the first period of its life was invented by DoD, uh, but but it was purchased or acquired piecemeal. Uh, the space segments were acquired with one type of acquisition uh, organization. Uh, the ground infrastructure was acquired with a different. Uh, uh, DOD acquisition uh, organization, uh, airborne terminals, ground terminals, maritime terminals, uh, all these pieces that made up the satellite ecosystem uh, were procured uh, uh, by different, a collection of many different acquisition organizations. Uh, And while that was necessary at the beginning in order to 
bring this satellite communications ecosystem into reality. Uh, it became a suboptimal uh, approach uh, as time passed because now, and I'll go back to my, to my NASA example, today, if NASA wanted to put a man or woman on Mars, uh, the most effective way for them might be to do it might be to go to a full service launch provider uh, you know, SpaceX or any of the others who would bid on that fixed price to take a, take a crew of three people to Mars and bring them home safely over a period of several weeks or whatever the mission was. But the rules of engagement might be that we're going to optimize every portion of this uh, project and we need the government customer to basically stay out of our way because we're going to go really fast and we're going to do amazing things and we're going to push technology's envelope uh, to the maximum extent we can safely. Okay, well, that's what Mark Dankberg did with Viaset 1 and Viaset 2 and Viaset 3 is is Viaset. Uh, Mark Dankberg built uh, the entire satellite ecosystem uh, and, he, and he did it because he could optimize every piece of the ecosystem from the space segment to the ground infrastructure to the terminals to the waveforms to the networking to the cybersecurity element that lays on top of it. So today, um, DOD found himself unable to build a uh, satellite ecosystem uh, that optimized performance uh, and optimized affordability and bandwidth economics in the same way that industry could. So they decided they needed to procure differently and they needed to aggregate all of these different acquisition elements together uh, in order to be able to buy a more optimal, uh, more capable, more affordable satellite communications capability uh, for our warfighters. So that was one of the objectives of creating the Space Force. And that's why, and, and, so, and so it aggregates, it's moving toward aggregating this acquisition, these disparate acquisition elements together so that they can uh, acquire uh, more, more affordably and more rapidly. The second thing was that uh, was space became uh, a domain, uh, a fighting domain. Uh, and just like if you think back in history, thousands of years, uh, there was always a ground domain and there was always a maritime domain. Uh, and in uh, World War I, in the 1915, 1920 timeframe, uh, aircraft were invented and the air domain emerged. And in the beginning, uh, aircraft were organized uh, underneath the army. You had the Army Air Corps. Uh, and over time, military leaders determined that the air domain was not a sub-element of the ground domain, and it should be broken out and it should stand on its own as a separate service. And the United States created the Air Force. Uh, so now there was an Army, a Navy, and an Air Force, and they recognized this third domain. What we're recognizing now as a, as a nation is that space, uh, it's time for space to stand up as the fourth domain. So the Space Force was created uh, in order to, uh, in recognition that the space domain exists, that the space domain is real, that the space domain is a warfighting domain just like land, sea, and air. So uh, the Space Force was created in order to be able to defend and, and assure that our military and our commercial uh, uh, interests had free access to space and, uh, and they could defend it. So it's, it's both an acquisition initiative as well as a as warfighter domain. Okay. Well, it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So it, it sounds like uh, focus is is part of the uh, the idea behind it. So how would you say uh, Viasat's capabilities align with that Space Force vision? Well, you mentioned the Space Force vision. So let's talk about that. Um, General J. Raymond 
issued uh, his Space Force Space Force vision on the 23rd of January of this year, 23 January of 2020. Uh, and it comes on the heels of two other events. In December of 2018, uh, the Air Force Space Command assumed the sole responsibility for procurement of commercial SATCOM services for the Department of Defense. Uh, and that has subsequently been transferred to the United States Space Force. Okay, six to eight months later, in August of 2019, the United States Space Command was established to protect America's interests in space and to ensure access, access to space for the full range of military operations. Those events, the one in December of 2018 and the second in August 2019, speak to the two points I said I talked about earlier on this podcast, which has to do first with respect to procurement, and the second one has to do with uh, defending uh, the space as domain. Okay. The third element then that happened uh, 23 January of 2020 is the U.S. Space Force established their vision for satellite communications. Uh, and it recognizes that adversaries understand that satellite communications brings our American warfighters uh, a unique capability, uh, connectivity in a unique way. And it's a significant enabler in terms of their mission effectiveness and safety. So in times where we have escalated geopolitical tensions, uh, adversaries work to deny, degrade, or destroy uh, our forces' satellite communications capability. And so the Space Enterprise Vision, first and foremost, recognizes that threat to space. And it recognizes that that threat includes both military or MILSATCOM as well as commercial or COMSATCOM capabilities, uh, and that the space force needs to improve its resiliency and robustness, its flexibility, and the manageability of this so that this space communications capability can be assured and can be resilient in all environments. Uh, that's really important. And one of the things that I think Viasat agrees completely with in terms of the space enterprise vision is there are several elements that, uh, that come together to make that a reality. The first one is the blending of commercial and military space assets together to create a holistic architecture where where uh, subscribers, uh, military subscribers, can roam pseudo-seamlessly among both military and commercial space assets, that they can roam among these different capabilities. Uh, that gives our warfighters a resilience. It gives them an ability sometimes to hide in plain sight on a commercial satellite because they're such a fractional user. Uh, it enables them to have uh, uh, an assured access in terms of connectivity. The second thing that is an enabler in the space enterprise vision uh, is flexible terminals, terminals that are multi-mode, multi-frequency band, multi-orbital regime, because if, if subscribers, if military subscribers are going to roam among these different assets, they have to have terminals with the same flexibility, with the flexibility uh, to do that. Just like your smartphone uh, roams between different uh, uh, cellular connectivities, uh, 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 networks, it roams uh, between different Wi-Fi or Bluetooth networks, and it does it seamlessly in the sense that you as the subscriber or the user really don't think about that too much in terms of your user experience. The phone does that automatically. And so we're moving toward a space enterprise vision uh, that brings together commercial and military space segments, implements flexible terminals uh, that are multi-band, multi-waveform, and multi-mode, 
so that they can operate in these various uh, alternatives. It brings together flexible networking such that, uh, such that the terminals can roam seamlessly without operator intervention. Uh, and then it brings forward, most importantly, perhaps, an enterprise management and control capability such that uh, this system is automated and subscribers roam among these different networks based on their geography, based on their particular use case and which uh, uh, satellite ecosystem best supports their use case. Uh, are they best supported by LEO with low latency? Are they best supported with by a GEO satellite constellation? Uh, should their use case be split and blended between LEO and GEO uh, or other things? Uh, we need an, an enterprise management and control capability that makes this easy so that the warfighter, the military subscriber doesn't have to spend their time worrying about their network connectivity. Uh, that comes seamlessly and their, their focus can be on their mission. Now, how does that connect to Viasat? That connects to Viasat in a really significant way because Viasat has been fielding such a system uh, since uh, around, for about 15 or 16 years, since about 2001 or 2002. And if you think about putting yourself in that time frame, Viasat was not a satellite provider at the time. We were a service provider. We provided satellite services to our subscribers. So we purchased satellite capacity from third parties and we stitched together a global network so that our customers, uh, a lot of the military customers, but also merchant marine and maritime, as well as uh, uh, business jets and, and other things, we, uh, we had a set of subscribers that wanted to travel globally and they wanted to be connected while they were in the air or on the sea or when they were in motion. So we provided a satellite service, a connectivity service, and we were a service provider. So we bought bandwidth from third parties and stitched it together so that our subscribers were always connected. And we consistently would upgrade or change the satellite inventory that we had in order to buy, to, to have the best available network that, was, that would support a, a subscriber's use cases. The other thing we did is we started doing data analytics on the use cases and how our subscribers wanted to use our network. And we began to see that the satellite capacity that they really wanted, that they really needed to support their use case uh, wasn't available. So that's when we turned our attention to becoming a satellite provider. And instead of being just a service provider, we began to turn our attention toward building the satellite network that we knew our subscribers really needed. And that was the Viasat One satellite network that, that uh, we fielded in 2011. And uh, we all know that it has a capacity that is orders of magnitude more than what that's been state of the art because we architected the satellite fundamentally differently. So it supports, could support our subscribers in their use case in a much more effective way. And then we built Viaset 2 and Viaset 3. So Viaset's experience in building space segments but also building flexible terminals that could roam among these different third-party uh, satellite networks as well as on our own networks, uh, building flexible networking so that when we roam among these different network infrastructures, we sometimes use different waveforms. We used Linkway or eBIM or we used uh, Surfbeam and now we're moving toward Afterburner and other waveforms. So we built terminals that could implement multiple waveforms as they roamed among these different networks. And finally, over a period of these 15 years or so, we built an enterprise network management and control capability that can that, that in real time uh, knows the, the, the status of every single device on our network. We know the data rate that's going forward and return uh, to and from that terminal. We know the mod code point it's operating, if it's experiencing weather and it's having to use a different mod code point to fight through the, uh, the rain or, the, or, uh, or other issues. We, we know that and we're able to uh, manage that 
at the individual device level uh, in near in near real time in an automated way. So the pieces, the fundamental elements that made up this space enterprise vision, these fundamental tenets of the space segments, the flexible terminals, the flexible networking, and the enterprise management and control, these were things advice I had experience with. So in many ways, when General J. Raymond uh, was, was nominated and selected to lead this uh, United States Space Force, and he had deputies in Lieutenant General David Thompson, Lieutenant General John Thompson, Claire Grayson, who was the chief of Space Force's commercial SATCOM office, all of these leaders uh, looked uh, uh, in a transformational way uh, at the kind of things Biosat was doing. And I think that, that it helped, it, 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 it put us in a position uh, in some regards as thought leadership, but also in a technology leadership way, because in some ways we, we were able to, to show them the art of the possible, the cutting edge of our technology envelope. And we were able to articulate to them not just where we were today and where we'd been and the lessons we'd learned, but we were able to articulate for them where we were going, the trajectory we were on, and that we were going to include uh, potentially uh, free space optics uh, capabilities. We were, going to, we were going to include orbital regimes like MEO and LEO. And we were able to show them a forward-looking uh, vision and trajectory uh, that in many ways uh, uh, they embraced. So, uh, and, and this advice that didn't stand alone in this, other companies participated in shaping these leaders' visions. Uh, but certainly, but certainly uh, we're very proud that we played a role and our thought leadership and technology leadership played a role in that. It, it, it's an important step forward uh, because I talked at the beginning of this podcast about how when these systems and these capabilities like satellite communications were first invented, uh, uh, we broke the satellite ecosystem down into its very into many many components, and we acquired them separately and independently, and then brought them together in order to create this satellite ecosystem. The challenge with that is it's lengthy. Uh, uh, the, the Institute of Defense Analysis uh, did a study a couple of years ago that said it, it, it typically takes between eight and 14 years or longer from the time that a validated operational requirement is uh, uh, established to the first fielding of an operational capability. So the first time that a warfighter gets it in their hands, that's between eight and 14 years. And then as you field that capability across the force to every soldier, okay, it can take another decade or two. So while that was necessary when we were inventing the technology and that time frame, uh, uh, as slow as it is, we didn't have much option as a collective defense and industry uh, uh, group. Uh, but today, okay, today it's different. Today uh, we realize that the technology is accelerating at a much faster rate, that a technology generation in satellite technology comes out every three or four years. Viaset 1, Viaset 2, Viaset 3. If you just look at the technology steps in each of those generations, okay, uh, the technology clearly moves significantly in just three or four years. So that acquisition process of eight to 14 years of breaking the system down and buying the pieces, that's just not working for our warfighters anymore. They've gone from being on the cutting edge of technology in the 1980s and 90s, being the first users to have mobile networking, to have GPS, to have satellite connectivity. They've gone from being on that cutting edge of technology in many ways to be on the trailing edge of technology because the government's acquisition process is now uh, obsolete relative to the fact that companies like Viasat do now have the broad enough shoulders and the full capability to field an entire satellite ecosystem and provide a managed private service 
uh, to DOD, uh, just like you uh, have a managed private service for your smartphone or your family plan or whatever it might be. So I think that in many ways, General J. Raymond, General Thompson and, and General David Thompson and, and J.T. Thompson, Claire Grayson, uh, these individuals um, uh, uh, see the problem and they have uh, stepped boldly into that gap and, and led transformational change uh, to take advantage of these private sector capabilities uh, so that they can field cutting-edge technology uh, to the men and women in uniform, our own sons and daughters who need it most when they go into harm's way and they're at the tactical edge, putting their lives on the line to do the business of this nation. Um, uh, they can have, again, the cutting-edge technology because uh, the acquisition community now, by buying managed private services, uh, uh, it's not quite as simple as when you go down to the to the, to the Verizon store and, and pick out a phone and have service in an hour. It's not quite as simple as that. But the advantage of it is that uh, uh, the acquisition process now has the potential to keep up with the technology trajectory, uh, uh, even though it keeps accelerating every day. So Viasat, we're very, very proud that Viasat has been, played a role in that, that we've been a part of that, that we have been a part of the conversation. Uh, and in many ways, uh, we like to think that we push the envelope a little bit um, in that regard. Now, the entire community across DOD is, I think, really uh, seeing this transformational leadership come to a reality, the leadership of, this, of the U.S. Space Force and Space Command. Uh, we did a survey uh, recently uh, in, con we, in conjunction with the Government Business Council, uh, and the survey was on the state of military communications technologies, and it will not surprise you that 68% of the respondents to our survey. In fact, the, the survey was among DOD leadership. It was around 300 or more U.S. active military and DOD civilians who were in leadership positions. They were 50% uh, of which held positions at the GS or GM-13 level in, or, or senior executive service level. So these are folks that are in the know, okay? 68% uh, of the respondents said that uh, warfighters expect the same level of connectivity and access to trusted and timely information on the battlefield as they get in civilian world. And that only 46% feel they have the level of connectivity needed to successfully execute their missions. And in fact, this may be startling to you or may not, Alex, but 98% of respondents said that they had been or have been disrupted in terms of their communications connectivity to a point where they're left with a complete loss of connectivity on the battlefield. 98%, okay? So clearly, uh, the connectivity vision of having the same connectivity or better connectivity at the tactical edge when, when our young men and women in uniform are doing the business of this nation, uh, uh, that vision has, has not been uh, the reality. Uh, and, so, uh, and so I think that in many ways, the transformational leadership of the U.S. Space Force in driving this transformational change um, is, is working to fix that. And, and from a Viaset perspective, we are thrilled to be a part of that because we feel it is uh, not just our responsibility, but it's an obligation that we make sure that our sons and daughters, when they go into harm's way to the service of this nation, that they have, in fact have uh, as good or better connectivity, security, resilience, and assured communications uh, uh, at the tactical edge as they do it have at home. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, Viasat is, is perfectly suited to, to partner with Space Force on, on these kinds of uh, systems to, to make it all come together. So uh, from a practical standpoint, uh, how has the transition gone uh, in Viasat's relationship with the, with the DOD moving uh, into the from the Air Force to the Space Force? I think we've taken the high road in many ways. We have been a thought leader. We have spoken uh, objectively. Uh, we have not uh, been a salesman for our own uh, network, our own satellite capabilities. What we've done is uh, we've spoken from the heart 
We've spoken from a central position of responsibility, uh, responsible thought leadership, and we've advocated the same fundamental tenets along. We have advocated that DOD implement uh, a hybrid adaptive network. Uh, that they implement an architecture uh, that enables them to roam among multiple satellite networks and multiple orbital regimes, that they, that they be able to roam among multi-band and multi, that they use multi-band and multi-network terminals. And they do it in a way that helps them avoid vendor lock and encourages competition and innovation. That is the right uh, path for the DOD to take. Our sons and daughters should always be operating on the best available network that is in their geography. And it's our job at Viaset to be that network. Uh, it's as simple as that. And, uh, and so that kind of responsibility and obligation drives us at Viaset. It drives us to make networks better, faster, more secure. It drives us uh, uh, to be more innovative, okay, uh, to understand our customers' problem set, to understand the missions that they're going to execute, and to make sure that the connectivity we're providing uh, supports those missions, enables those missions, and enables them to do it safely. That stimulus of knowing that we have to continue to be the best and that we're not advocating vendor locked, whether it be vendor locked to us or someone else, that we're advocating that they always be able to roam onto the best available uh, connectivity solution they have. That maximizes warfighter capabilities. It maximizes resilience. It maximizes uh, safety. And this hybrid architecture actually provides an inherent diversity. Uh, it removes single points of failure. It, it eliminates single points of attack. So it actually makes it more difficult on an adversary because it increases the complexity of their decision calculus of knowing where to attack to try to disrupt the satellite communications capability that our warfighters depend on so much to be connected, uh, not just to each other, but to the cloud so that they can leverage machine learning and AI and cloud empowerment uh, on the battlefield or in the execution of their missions just the same way they do at home. So they have situational awareness in a comprehensive and a, in a timely way. So they know what's going on in the world around them. They know where their friends and their buddies are. Uh, they know where uh, uh, their resources are if they need medical support, if they need logistic support. Uh, that type of connectivity and cloud empowerment uh, is, is, is increased and magnified uh, when warfighters have the ability to roam uh, among these different hybrid networks that utilize different waveforms, different frequency bands, different or orbital regimes, uh, different crypto, uh, different uh, uh, cybersecurity systems. Uh, so, it, so it imposes a cost and complexity on an adversary that goes back to the very first tenet that I talked about that said that in the, in the foreword of the U.S. Space Forces Space Vision for Satellite Communications that was published here in 23 January, it says adversaries understand the advantage that satellite communications brings our warfighters, and in times of escalated tension or in times of war, they work to deny, degrade, and destroy those satellite connectivity capabilities because they know just how powerful and enabling they are. And by operating a hybrid adaptive network so that our warfighters are not confined to a single uh, uh, vendor or a single network that they can roam among all the available options, uh, uh, that imposes a cost and complexity on the adversary that makes our sons and daughters safer and more effective in their mission as they go about this, uh, uh, as they go about their duties serving the nation. So, uh, I, I uh, really pleased with the team at Viasat, and really pleased with the way they have uh, responsibly engaged in partnership with the with the U.S. Space Force leadership in order to uh, uh, to move forward 
uh, in such a uh, comprehensive and significant way uh, with the establishment of the Space Force and some of the fundamental tenets of the space vision. All right. Well, Ken, thanks so much for, for outlining all of that uh, for us. It makes it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I had to ask, uh, you know, at this time, uh, we're, we're here at the end of May, and uh, there's a new show on Netflix with Steve Carell called Space Force. I was wondering if, uh, if you and the team are going to be watching it. <laughs> of course we will. In fact, uh, General Raymond has tweeted a couple of times. He's been uh, uh, joked that, uh, you know, General, General Raymond is a... Uh, uh, has a distinct personality and a distinct image. And uh, uh, Steve, Steve Corral has a different image and, and has too much hair. To use General Raymond's word, he has too much hair to be the head of the Space Force. But uh, uh, yeah, many of us have, I said, have watched the trailer. We've seen it. Uh, we're looking forward to it. Uh, we love Steve uh, Carell, and uh, uh, he's done so many fantastic things. I, I, have, I have no idea uh, 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 quite what to expect, but I, I, I think maybe they should have named the show the Space Force instead of the Space Force, because I think that uh, I'm sure he's going to take a, a very comical and a lighthearted view of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, what, a very, what, what a very serious job General Raymond and the Space Force are really doing on behalf of our nation and us all. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing uh, you know how, how this all unfolds with Viasat and the Space Force. And thanks so much for, uh, for walking us through it, Ken. Alex, thank you so much. I do appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to share a perspective. And, and uh, you've been so kind to, to, to host me. I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Viasat Podcast. If you know someone you think would be interested in what you've heard on this episode, please share. You can always find the latest episode on our blog at corpblog.viasat.com. And you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts.